Well, thank you, Greg. And uh, again, appreciate the opportunity to to take this sabbatical and what it means. Um, again, I'm grateful to you guys for all that you have meant to us over the years, and we look forward to, to continuing that. Um, I wanted to share with you this morning, I'm going to start this way, but I'll share this way, that um, the passage we're going to get into in a minute is one of the passages that has meant the most to me over the past several years in terms of my own understanding of what it means. And I hope this morning those in the room and those online can be equally encouraged by um, what I think the text says and the power of it to hopefully renew our own understanding of the very basic way that we even relate to God and even relate to him spiritually. Now, to get there, I want to tell you one of the things I like to say as a coach to my players all the time, and if you played for me and some of you are in the room who played for me, you know this, um, I'll often say at the end of a game, especially one that's been close and maybe we lost, I'll put it this way, and I think I got this from Coach K, not everything is great in a win and not everything is bad in a loss. All right, you guys have heard that before if you played for me. Not everything is great in a win and not everything is bad in a loss. And the reason we say that is because sometimes I've been a part of coaching games where we've worked incredibly hard and actually played really, really well against a high quality team, but the last second bucket went in for them and not for us. And it's a sense of loss, of ugh, everything is bad. Well, no, not everything is bad. Not everything is bad at all. Just because they got one more bucket than you doesn't mean that everything is bad. Not everything is bad in a loss. And what I've learned, and I hope my players learn over the years, is that it really matters. <laughs> it matters significantly what scoreboard you're watching. So as a, as a player, most players just actually watch the physical scoreboard. Like, okay, we have 36 and they have 24. We must be doing well. Well, no, if you're playing eight-year-olds and you're 16, you should be winning 150 to nothing, right? So the scoreboard isn't enough to tell the whole story of what's going on. It matters what scoreboard you're watching. In business, you know this to be true, of course, and you talk to your employees about making sure that everyone's on the right you know, scoreboard, you're seeing the right things, you're targeting the right things. This also impacts how we, um, in, how we relate to God spiritually. Because whether we'd like to put it this way or not, and maybe you have a better image to use, um, I think we sometimes have a spiritual scoreboard that we'll use. How is it that we know that we're winning, if you will, or losing in our relationship with God? Even in our relationship with each other, spiritually. How do we know when we're doing well and when we're doing poorly? And by default, often without verbalizing it, we have a set of scoreboards, if you will, that we kind of come to agree with one another on. And if we don't verbalize it, sometimes we can get locked into looking at the wrong scoreboard spiritually. For me, and I don't know about your experience, but for me, spiritually, often I will feel better if I'm more consistent in what we hear called personal devotions, all right? Multiple times a week, private times of reading and prayer. If you add journaling, you get bonus points for your devotional time. Right? If you post about it on socials appropriately and not in a braggy kind of way, then you get extra bonus points for doing that. If you season that into your conversation and you have a conversation with someone and they just say, well, in my time with the Lord, I was praying for this and this and this happened, then you get a little bit of an extra point or two because you're seasoning your day with a little bit of talk spiritually. And this may sound, I'm, I'm picking on some low-hanging fruit here, by the way, and I would encourage gr growing spiritual conversations, by the way. But sometimes without thinking about it, we fall into kind of the low-hanging scoreboard is, as long as the people around me and as long as I am doing the things spiritually, externally, 
that others expect that people like me should do, then the scoreboard says that I'm winning. Like I'm coming to church, I'm in my Bible, I'm praying, I'm posting, I'm trying to do the right thing, I'm learning, I'm, I'm doing these things. And that can be honestly quite low-hanging fruit. And that's the first level that we often look at. And it matters what scoreboard we're looking at. And I would argue that that scoreboard is accessible to all of us, but I don't think it's the one that Jesus uses. I think that scoreboard is, is simple and easy to use, but it's primarily based on external. It's primarily, it primarily creates a moralistic framework for how we relate to God. The more moral you are, the more consistent and faithful and externally driven you are, then the better you'll feel about the work you do to relate to God. And there's something very good about obedience, by the way. We read in the Bible, of course, that obedience is better than sacrifice. So obedience is a, is a good thing to be encouraged. But obedience isn't all that there is. And one of the warning signs in this text this morning that Jesus engages us on, I believe, is this warning sign of this. I'm going to put it this way this morning. Warning, be aware, that don't forget that heaven actually celebrates repentance more than obedience. That heaven actually celebrates repentance more than obedience. And so as you have your eyes on what it's going to take to grow spiritually, if you have your eyes on what it takes to get close to God, if you have your eyes on that scoreboard, and that scoreboard is about simply obedience. What am I doing to obey God? And we start lining up the externals. Jesus is going to remind religious leaders in the text we're going to see this morning that heaven celebrates repentance so much more than obedience. Repentance both in our own lives and in the lives of people who are outside of faith in Christ. And so it matters deeply what scoreboard that you're looking at. It matters significantly. And so I want to invite you to look at the text with me, and you can decide what you think, what you see. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's a third book in the New Testament. There's a Bible in the chair near you. It's our gift to you. If you don't own one, you can open it up on your phone if you need to find it there. Um, Luke chapter 15, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for the past uh, seven Sundays. This is the eighth of nine. And in this uh, set of three parables, we're going to see Jesus uh, tells a story about sheep, coins, and a son, two of them. So we're going to start beginning at verse 1, and then I'm going to pause when I get to uh, verse 10. All right? So I'm reading from the New International Version. And here's the context, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or, verse 8, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. 
In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, let's pause this story right here. The next story that I'm going to read for you just in a couple minutes and read with you is a story that many of you are familiar with, even if you've never been in church before. It's a story of what we often call the prodigal son. It's a story of an older son who stayed at home and a younger son who got tired of dad and his rules and left and lived a wild lifestyle. Things went down the, the tubes and he came running home and dad came to meet him and greet him and they had a party and the older son got angry and end of story. The, the way that I traditionally have understood this story, track with me here for a minute. The first story is a story of lost sheep. If you need to, look in your text again. How many sheep are there that are in total? How many sheep? That's right. We'll do multiple choice. A, 100. B, 100. Or C, 100. Or D, all the above. All right. D, there we go. All the above. There was 100. There's 100 sheep. How many coins are there? 10. Thank you for the confidence. Love it. 10. So 100 sheep, 10 coins. How many sons are there? Two. Each time there's one that's lost, it's found, right? One sheep, one coin, one son. And so as the story moves in progression, we see kind of a funnel of many to smaller to, to smaller. And Jesus, I think, is making the case. And what I always believed about these three parables set back to back to back is that what Jesus is trying to do is set the importance of how much the Father is willing to come after even the one lost one. All right, that one in a hundred is important, one in ten is important, even one in two is important. I don't think that's the whole story. I don't think it's the whole story. I think what Jesus is doing is setting up the first two parables to try to make a point about the third. I think the first two simply exist to support the third, and they create a real irony or they create a real problem for the listener. The first one I think as people are listening to the story, it's like, sure, that makes sense. The one is lost, the one sheep, there's 99 that are found, but the guy goes out, good for the guy. In fact, they even wrote children's books about that called The Lost Lamb. If you, anyone ever read that, that was one of our favorite kids' books to read to our kids. It's a beautiful story, great story. And what happens in the story, you just read it, look back, look back at verse uh, 5. When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. He goes home and he calls in friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me. I found my sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who don't need to repent. This would have been a common practice in the ancient Near East. People are like, I get it. makes sense. You lost one. You found it. Everyone's happy. Even one of 100 we're happy for. But then it gets more personal or smaller. It gets one in 10. Look at verse 9 of the text we just read. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in heaven the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so we have rejoicing, rejoicing, repenting, repenting happening. And, the, and the, I think the listeners there are like, this all makes sense. Of course we do this. We just lost a tenth of what I have and I found it. That, that would be a cause for celebration. And we lost one out of a hundred. Even that is cause for celebration. So don't you think one out of two would also be cause for celebration? And so when the story turns at the end of the prodigal son, that's the teaching point. Look at it with me in verse 11. It's a story many of you know, verse 11. Jesus continued. There was a man who has two sons, who had two sons. A younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, 
and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how much of my father's how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the father said to him, Excuse me, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the, the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. And that should be the end of the story. That's how the other stories ended, isn't it? The sheep and the coin. It ended with a celebration, right? Everyone's celebrating. Everyone's rejoicing. That should be where the story ends. I think what Jesus has done is he's drawn his audience in, and now he's about to turn it to twist something, <laughs> to help them to see their own blindness. Because this is how it should end. There was 100, one is lost, everyone celebrates. We all know that. 10, one is found, she celebrates. We agree. One was lost, he is found, and what happens? We celebrate. End, wrap it, baby. It's the end of the story. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, and so he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened cat because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry. And refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered the father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And that's what we do for things that are lost. We celebrate them. But what, of a, what a dud of a way to end the story, right? This, this doesn't sell the script to Hollywood very well at all, does it? I mean, it, it sells better at the end of verse 20, uh, 24, Everyone celebrates. The lost guys come home. So what's going on here? Why does Jesus turn it at the end? Because everyone should agree. Because they did. They all agreed with the sheep and the coin. We celebrate lost things. But the older son doesn't celebrate lost brothers. He doesn't. And that's the issue. Who's in, who's in the room? Not right now. Who's listening to his story? This is so important. Go back to the beginning of this chapter. Verses 1 and 2. Look at that. I'm going to read it again. Verse 1 especially. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. So Jesus has an audience of people who I would argue are a bunch of younger brothers. Tax collectors, 
Many of them were Jewish, who left, if you will, betrayed their families to get money at the hands of the Roman government to tax their own Jewish brothers and sisters. They left, they betrayed, they walked away. Sinners, people who knew they were morally corrupt. They were out. These are the younger brothers in the story. The older brothers introduced in verse 2, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. Who does that sound like? <laughs> this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This man is celebrating the younger brother. And so what we have in Jesus' story, I, verses 1 and 2 give us a picture. The younger brother in the story of the prodigal son is the tax collectors and sinners that Jesus is talking to. The older brother in the prodigal son is the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law who are muttering against Jesus. Why are you celebrating the people who are immoral? Why are you doing that? And so Jesus tells, hey, doesn't everybody agree we celebrate a lost sheep? We all agree. Doesn't everybody agree we all celebrate a lost coin? We all agree. Doesn't everybody agree that we celebrate a lost son? We don't all agree. Why don't you agree? Because there's something in the older brother that says my obedience was meant to bring about my own salvation. And what you've just done is you've given, if you will, salvation or pardon to someone who has been disobedient. And that isn't cool. We've got a real problem with that. Tim Keller, uh, who many of you have heard me quote uh, Keller before, uh, he's written in a really, really good book on this called The Prodigal God. Prodigal God. If you've never read that, I'd encourage you to read that. It can be a really helpful read. Um, really encourage that. His teaching on here has really shaped me. And so, a little unusual for me, but I'm going to spend a little more time just letting some of Keller's words sit with us this morning. Because I think what he does is he sets for us the table so well for how we see our relationship with God in light of this story. And some of what he has to say is rather offensive, if I can be honest. He wrote at one point in his book about how Jesus regularly taught and it attracted those who were irreligious. And he put it this way. He said, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of the day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect the kind of outsiders that Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, buttoned-down, moralistic people. The licentious and liberated or the broken and marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. That's rather direct. What's he saying? I think what he's saying is it's possible that our churches might be made up more of older brothers than we want to admit. They might be led by pastors who are more older brothers than they want to admit. We might be looking, if I put it in my terms earlier, at the wrong scoreboard. And sometimes 
we might be leading you to look at the wrong scoreboard. That the moralism that so easily entices us sits among us so freely and easily. And what's behind this, if I can get a little more direct and personal with this, is a misunderstanding of the gospel. I love how Keller writes it. He puts it this way. He says this, and I'll put it up on the screen for you. He says, if, like the elder brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you have worked so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper, your example, even your inspiration, but he is not your savior. You are serving as your own savior. Let that sink in for a minute. My concern is that some of us have been in church for ever and might need to see this for the first time. If like the elder brother, we believe that, that God ought to bless us and help us and keep us, we've worked really hard. We've been obedient. We've been good. We haven't been like those people who are not in church, thankfully, right? We haven't been like the people who have been immoral, right? We've not raised our kids like those people, right? We've hopefully, you know, insulated ourselves from the people out there who are like the younger brothers who are, you know, having their way with prostitutes and doing their own thing. Hopefully, we've been able to be obedient and say the course. We're working the fields. I mean, come on, we're doing the things that we're supposed to do. If we believe that God ought to bless me and help me and keep me because of that, then Jesus isn't my savior. I'm serving as my own savior. Let me put it this way. Well, let me, imagine you're working at a company uh, and in your company uh, you have a boss and at the end of the day, the boss is going to give you a verdict on your work. And there's a quota in your company. You have to make 100 widgets a day, whatever those are for you. You have to make 100 widgets a day and, and, and get it done. You got two people working. Your uh, coworker is like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Who wants to do this? I don't want to do this. And so they, they blow it off. And they make like six and then go on an extended lunch break. All right? And they're done. Like they're out of there. Who cares? You make 105 because you picked up some of his. At the end of the day... At the end of the day, what happens? If you look at what happened, both employees, depending upon the second one's perspective, but both of these employees have attempted, if you will, to be their own God. The one who makes six and walks away is like, I don't need that authority of that boss in my life telling me what to do. I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to go make my own decisions. But the one who wants to gain the favor of the boss says, okay, the way to gain that is I'm going to work and I'm going to work extra to get it done. And in the process has become his own God, believing that my work is going to save me. My work is going to be the thing that saves me. Not my boss's verdict on me, but my work is going to save me. And so I am working as my own God to show that I am worthy of being accepted and saved. And so this is what happens in the older brother scenario. And this is why, as Keller tells us, we misunderstand sin. A lot of us think sin is simply break, breaking rules. Sin also includes keeping rules for the wrong reasons. 
So as, as Keller writes of this, sin is not just breaking the rules. It's not just breaking the rules. It's putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge, just as each son sought to displace the authority of the father in his own life. Each son looked at the father and said, the younger son said, I don't need your authority in my life. I'm going to do my own thing. The older son said, I'm going to go prove my work and worth so that you will be obligated to bless me. Each one is displacing the authority of the father in his own life. It's really, really subtle, but it is really, really powerful. They mutter. They don't rejoice with those who need to repent because both are working to be their own savior. Both are displacing the authority of God. If I put it, put it another way, one of the things that I've appreciated in learning from Keller is how we habitually, we instinctively, we routinely look to other things besides God for our hope, for our significance, for our security. And as he puts it, one other spot here, he says this, it's only when we see the desire to be your own Savior and Lord lying beneath both your sins and your moral goodness that you are on the verge of understanding the gospel and becoming a Christian indeed. It's only when you see the desire to be your own Savior and Lord lying beneath both your sins and your moral goodness that you're on the verge of understanding the gospel. Jesus didn't give this parable for the younger brother. He gave it for the older. He gave it for the moralist in all of us, for the religious, Bible-believing, buttoned-down, conservative, spiritually person who simply wants to obey. And the struggle this is. And he goes on to put it this way. He said, when you realize that the antidote to being bad is not just being good, you are on the brink. If you follow through, it'll change everything. How you relate to God, self, others, the world, your work, your sins, your virtue. When you realize the antidote to being bad is not just being good. So what is he saying? If we summarize all this, this is the, the thing I hope that can bring this down to you. Jesus teaches us that while younger brothers need to repent of what they do wrong, older brothers need to repent of all the reasons why they try to do right in the first place. Younger brothers need to repent of what they've done wrong, but older brothers need to repent of all the ways in which we've tried to be our own savior from the beginning. All the ways in which we try to do this on our own. All the ways in which we try to make 100 widgets a day and hope that in our obedience, God will look at us with favor. And we've functionally displaced him. We haven't fallen on the mercy of the gospel. We've fallen on moralism to save us. We've become our own God. And in that, it's very difficult, if not impossible, for the older brother to celebrate and rejoice in repentance. Because we don't need repentance. We just need to keep obeying, and keep doing the right thing over and over and over again. This is the offense of the gospel. This is the offense of the gospel. It gets right in my way, and maybe it gets in yours. It says, your great plan to have an amazing, perfectly well-put-together life, everything buttoned up and managed and owned and controlled and, and led really well and kids doing amazing things, spouse, your marriage is awesome and your finances are beautiful and perfect and nothing's going wrong. Even when they go wrong, things are still going to, we're going to figure out a way to line up. The gospel flies in the face of that and says that we fall on the mercy of Christ for salvation. We fall on the mercy of Christ. Even when we do all the work that we do, even when we do seek to be disciplined in our spiritual habits, which I affirm in the right way, 
Even when we do that, we fall in the mercy of Christ for salvation. We rejoice with those who repent. We recognize as older brothers, and I have a tendency, big tendency, to be an older brother. We, 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 must, we must repent of the very reasons why we're trying to do right in the first place. Because repentance is a part of the rhythm of the gospel. It's a part of what warms our heart to Christ. It's a part of what helps us see what the real scoreboard is. It isn't about our moralism. It isn't about our obedience. While obedience is better than sacrifice, yes, repentance is celebrated over and over and over again. There's more rejoicing in heaven over the one who repents than over 99 who don't need to repent. And so this message to the older brother, this warning, the way I put it here, the warning is don't forget that heaven celebrates repentance more than obedience. And I would argue that as, you, as we get older in the faith, we tend, to, we tend to lean, just merge toward moralism. Just, it's in our culture. It's in our tendencies. We tend to just want to align to obedience, doing the right things. And I just want to encourage you to keep your eye on the right scoreboard that repentance is celebrated. Repentance, even repentance in our own heart of the hubris or the pride in our own heart, the, the reasons why we do right in the first place is repeated over and over and over again. So what can you do with this? I just want to encourage you. I'm going to go back to something I say, you know, I've said multiple times. What can you do? I want to encourage you. Tell yourself the gospel again and again and again and again. When you're looking in the mirror, you feel like you don't measure up. Why don't you measure up? Are you not beautiful enough? You're not strong enough? Not insightful enough? You don't understand the Bible well enough? You're not a good enough leader, good enough father? You're not clearly uh, cut out for the work you're doing? Is that what you feel? So what's the plan? To come up with one? To just be better? To work it out? 30-day plan for this, a 90-day plan for that? 60-day plan for prayer and journaling? What's the plan? Let's do something, right? Let me do something to improve myself. Let me do something to, to measure it. Let me do something to find favor. What's the better plan? To fall in the mercy of a father who comes for you. To fall in the mercy and grace of Christ. This is the gospel over and over and over again. It's a gospel of repentance. It's a gospel of repenting of why we even try to do the right things in the first place. It's seeing that the father comes running for the younger son, and if the older son is willing, he will come running for the older son too, if the older son isn't so preoccupied in doing all the things over and over and over and over and over again, and having his eye and her eye on the wrong scoreboard. The story uh, turns on a dime. We all know we celebrate the lost sheep. We agree. We celebrate the lost coin. We agree. I'm not so sure we always celebrate when one who is repentant is found. Not when we know them. Not when we know the sin and evil and immorality they've been a part of. Why? Because sometimes we try to obey too much, if you will. We misplace it. Tell yourself the gospel story over and over and over again. Your week begins, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your week begins in seeing not how amazing and powerful you can be or what you can do, your week begins in seeing the mercy of Christ, the grace of the gospel to you, that forgiveness is available, freedom is available, but not because you're going to be consistent, not because you're going to be awesome, not because your life is even going to change, but freedom and life and joy comes because we fall on the mercy of Christ over and over and over again. And we rejoice 
in repentance. We're not afraid of it. We're not afraid of it. We rejoice in it. Tell yourself the gospel over and over and over again so that we can rejoice and we can celebrate together when one has been found, even when we are the one who has been found. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the story of this prodigal son and the older son who doesn't want to come home and celebrate because he can't. He's stuck. He's stuck on his moralism, stuck on his obedience, stuck on why he's doing all the things right in the first place. God, this is such a temptation for those of us who've been in church for, for more than a minute. It is such a temptation for those of us who've grown up in the faith, who have grown up in space where we have obedience continued to be pushed and obedience is definitely better than sacrifice and developing habits and disciplines are all very good but they are not what saves us so father i pray that you would help us to repent of even the very reason why we do good things in the first place that our hearts would be soft we'd be warmed again by the mercy of Christ to save us. Help us to tell ourselves the gospel story over and over and over again, that we have nothing on our own to pay for our sin, but it's through faith in Christ and by his grace we are saved. So Father, help us to live in that grace through faith and work in it and play in it lead our families in that grace and mercy that we may know you at the deepest level of our soul. We pray this in Jesus' name.